0: It really is a blessing to be able to worship God, and it thrills my heart to be able to be here with you this morning, and I hope it does yours as well. We have visitors with us today, and I want to take this opportunity to say welcome, and we hope that you find a warm welcome here at this congregation, and if you have any questions or if there's some way in which we can help you while you're here, we hope that you'll certainly let that be known. Before we begin, I also want to just uh, say to you or request to you that you begin making your plans and praying for our Rise Spiritual Growth Workshop. It's coming up. It's right around the corner, and if you haven't noticed already, we have some of the um, flyers, which really this year we just did a front and back uh, card, and those are available for you on the credenza at uh, the back of the auditorium. Also, you can find the information on the church website, on the Facebook page, and you should have received an email uh, a week or so ago with information about it as well. Let me also say this. If you have not been receiving emails from the congregation, then be sure and come find Karen or one of the elders or myself and let us know so we can, so we can fix that and make sure that you, uh, your email address and that your name is on the list so that you're getting all of the information and things that are coming out, not only about the workshop, but about all of the other events and things that are going on here at the congregation as well. This morning we want to talk a little while about influence and about winning souls with our influence. We need to realize that everyone has an influence, whether we realize it or not. You think about a baby When a baby is born into this world, he immediately begins to influence the lives of those who are closest to him. Immediately, nighttime routines change. Mealtime routines change. Leisure time changes. Priorities change. Basically, every part of the life of the parents who brought that child into the world change Because of the influence that the baby has whenever he is born and whenever he comes home. That influence continues on throughout his life. As a child, his parents are going to make decisions, some decisions that are based upon his needs and his requirements and his education. As a young adult, he's going to grow and he's going to begin influencing his friends at school or uh, in sports or some other kind of activity. As an adult, he's going to have an influence on his wife. He's going to have an influence on his children. He's going to have an influence on his co-workers and everyone who's around him. And this process, this wheel will just keep on turning from generation to generation As every person is born into this world and the influence that they have on the people who are around them begins. So we all have an influence. The only question is whether or not our influence is good or evil. And we also need to recognize that our influence is going to live on even after we die. Think about these passages. In Hebrews chapter eleven and verse number four, the Bible says, "By faith, offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous; God testifying of his gifts. And though he being dead, and though it, and through it rather, he being dead, still speaks." In Revelation fourteen and verse thirteen. The Bible says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, right, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and listen to this, their works, they follow them. Then there's this very interesting passage in the Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 6, and verse 16. And in that passage, God makes this statement. He says, For the statutes of Amri are kept, and the works of Ahab's house are done and you walk in their counsels. The interesting thing about this is that Omri had been dead for 200 years, and Ahab had been dead for 170 years, when Micah writes this down by the mouth of the Lord, and yet the Lord says, you're continuing to keep their statutes, and you're continuing to walk in their ways. Their influence was still a very present reality in the nation and in the lives of the people of Israel, long after their deaths. So today we want to think about our influence and how our influence has an impact on the people around us. And as we said, that influence can be good or it can be evil. First, let's think about what it means when our influence is evil. In Proverbs chapter 22, verse 24 and 25, Solomon says, Make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. A New Testament passage that would go along with this would be 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33 where the Bible talks about evil companions corrupting good morals or good practices. We often illustrate this by way of talking about maybe someone standing up on a table and you standing up on the floor and um, you, have the, you try to pull the person down off the table and the person standing on the table tries to pull you up on the table and which of the two is easier? Obviously, it's easier for the person who's on the floor to pull the person off of the table. Proverbs 22 says that when we make friendships with those who are angry and those who are furious, we're going to learn their ways, and those ways are going to become a trap for us. But Proverbs 29 verse 12 picks up on that passage, but this time talking about rulers, the Proverbs writer says, if a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. And in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 2 verse 18, we read about these two men by the name of Hymenaeus and Philetus. And Paul is talking about those who spread a false message. And he says their message will spread like a cancer and Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. They've strayed concerning the truth saying that the resurrection has already passed and they overthrow the faith of some. It is entirely possible for the influence that you and I have amongst the people that we come into contact with throughout our lives can be like one of these three passages. Like an angry man or like a ruler who pays attention to lies or like Hymenaeus and Philetus whose influence is all negative and is all evil and spreads, 2 Timothy 2.18, like a cancer. But then on the other hand, it's possible that our influence could be good. You remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16. Jesus talks about salt and light. He says, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, what good is it? It's thenceforth it's, it's good for nothing to be, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. You are the light of the world, he says. A city that is set on a hill, a hill can't be hidden. And who lights a, no man lights a candle and puts it under a, a bushel, but rather it, gives, it stands on a lampstand. It gives light to all that are in the house. Jesus is talking about our positive influence and the need for us to reflect the light of Christ Jesus into a world that's dark and full of sin and wickedness and that so desperately needs the influence of God. Then we read about a congregation of people in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 to 10. It's one of my favorite passages. As Paul talks about this congregation, he makes this statement. He says, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone out. Notice this, so that we don't need to say anything. In other words, any time Paul or Silas or Barnabas or anybody else, any time they traveled to a congregation, they didn't have to say, let me tell you about the church at Thessalonica because they had already heard about the church at Thessalonica. They already knew about them. They already knew about their work. They already knew about their faithfulness. And Paul will go on to say that uh, everyone has heard how you have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The brethren at Thessalonica were using their influence for good. And as we think about our influence and as we think about the purpose of our influence... What we've got to keep in mind is that the goal of that influence is exactly what we read in those passages in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The goal of our influence is not to influence people for uh, some sort of political party or college football team or anything else. The goal of our influence is to draw people to Christ. That's what it's all about. And so as we live our daily lives and we think about the people uh, with whom we come into contact, whether it be at home or whether it be at school or at the grocery store or at work or wherever the place may be, in every instance, our mindset should be, I want to influence this person for good so that they can be drawn to the Lord. Proverbs 11 verse 30 says, uh, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. How can we use our influence to win souls? How can we as light and as the salt of the earth, how can we as those who try to be like the Thessalonian brethren in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, how can we use this great influence of ours in order to influence souls for Christ? Let's talk about that today. First of all, if we're going to do that, we're going to have to remember how important it is to be mindful of the need to be evangelistic. We're going to have to be mindful of how important it is to seek and save the lost. Remember the command in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. We we call it the Great Commission because just before Jesus' ascension into heaven, you remember he told his disciples to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. That's Mark's account, Mark 16, verse 15 and 16. Matthew's account says, that we are to go into all the world and we are to teach and we are to baptize and we are to teach those who are baptized to observe all the things that Jesus has commanded. You see, it's this process of soul winning, teach, baptize and continue teaching and it's a wheel that continues to turn and Jesus did not issue that command to a certain select few uh, people in the church, but rather he issued it to everyone in the church. But that piggybacks on our responsibility to follow the example of our Lord. What did Jesus say about himself in Luke 19 and verse 10? What was Jesus' purpose for coming to earth according to that passage? Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, we learn that Jesus came and he left a pattern. He left an example for us to follow that we might follow in his footsteps. And, of course, the meaning of it is that what we're to do is try to the very best of our ability to make our life look exactly like His, so that we, like He in John chapter 8, could say, I always do those things that please the Father. Now, do you remember what Jesus said about the value of a soul in Matthew 16, verse 26? Jesus said, What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You think about all of the riches, all of the wealth, all of the material things that exist in this world, the things that exist in this world, uh, the world over, the things that have yet to be discovered that are of great value that exist in this world. And Jesus says you could take all of those things, you could combine them together and multiply them by, by a million and they still would not come close to equaling the value of one soul. One person in this world. That's how important every soul is. Jesus knew that. And as a follower of Christ, I'm commanded to follow his example. And that means that I have to recognize the value of the soul in the same way that Jesus recognized the value of the soul. And I'll never be able to use my influence to win souls for Christ if I don't first recognize how important each and every soul is. Think about this passage in Romans chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. In these two passages, the Apostle Paul is talking about his desire to go to Rome and to preach the gospel there. And one of the things that Paul says in that passage is that he is a debtor. He talks about how he is ready, about how he is a debtor, and about how he's not ashamed to preach the gospel of Christ, Romans 1, 14, 15, and 16. I want you to think for a moment about that idea of being a debtor. Paul is not talking in that passage necessarily about being a debtor to the Lord. He's talking about being a debtor to the lost, about being a debtor to other people. That's interesting. And we stop and we ask ourselves for a moment, how in the world could one person be in debt to another person to teach them the gospel so that they might have an opportunity to obey it and their soul be saved? Can I ask you a question? Can you imagine a scenario in which you discovered the cure for cancer? And you hid it and you kept it all to yourself? Can you imagine turning on the news some night and finding that some person had died? And as his family was going on through his personal items, they found stashed deep within a file cabinet, hidden up within the attic, covered by a blanket, this cure that would immediately cure all kinds of cancer. And can you imagine what you would think about that? How dare he! How in the world could he keep that hidden from all... That's what, that's, those are the kinds of things that we would think someone's discovered this cure for this horrible disease that kills millions every year, and he kept it all to himself. You know, the Bible talks about... Uh, describes sin as a disease. The Bible tells us that sin kills people, Romans 3 verse 23, Romans 6 verse 23. And the Bible tells us that the answer to sin is the gospel of Jesus Christ and obedience to the gospel of christ so that we might be washed in the blood of christ that's what we read about in the pages of god's word so how is it that one person is a debtor to someone else it's in this way we have the message of the gospel the good news of salvation through jesus christ we hold it in our hands and we've heard it and we've obeyed it and paul knew it and so paul said i'm a debtor to all people because i know the message that saves people and i want them to hear it too We've got to be mindful of how important it is to be evangelistic, to win souls. But think about this passage from the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 3, and I want you to notice with me what Ezekiel says or what Ezekiel is told in Ezekiel chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse number 18 and extending down through verse number 21. Ezekiel 3, beginning in verse 18 and going through verse 21 Ezekiel begins talking about being a watchman and he talks about the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 33 as well. He describes the responsibility of a watchman. You see, God tells Ezekiel, I have set you up as a watchman. And he says, listen, the responsibility of the watchman is literally to watch. And when the watchman sees the enemy coming, he's supposed to sound the alarm and let the people in the city know that the is coming so that they can prepare Now if the watchman sounds the alarm and the people ignore it and they're swallowed up by the enemy, their blood is on their own hands. But if the watchman sees the enemy coming and he doesn't sound the alarm and the people have no warning and they don't have the ability to prepare themselves, the blood falls on the watchman's hands. Do you see the application? We take the same principle of Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel 33 and we apply it to ourselves as Christians and members of the body of Jesus Christ recognizing that we serve as watchmen and we have the responsibility to sound the alarm and warn and if those who hear the alarm ignore what it says then their blood is on their own hands but if we refuse or fail for whatever reason to sound it then perhaps their blood might be on ours. Sometimes we sing a song within the better land before the bar we stand, how deeply grieved our souls will be. If any lost one there should cry in deep despair, you never mentioned him to me. That's the idea of Ezekiel chapter 3 and Ezekiel 33 and Romans one fourteen and so many of these other passages that tell us over and over again that we have, to have, that we have to recognize the importance and the responsibility of not hoarding the gospel selfishly to ourselves, as it were, but instead uh, spreading it and sounding it far and wide to every soul that we can because it and it alone has the power to save people. But Listen, we have to recognize that the spreading of the gospel is not always verbal. Now that's required, Romans 10 verse 17, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There never was a person who obeyed the gospel without hearing it and there never will be. But there is also a sense in which the gospel is proclaimed not necessarily through word but through action. And that brings us back in line with our topic today, talking about winning souls through our influence. Think about these two passages, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11 and 12. In those two passages, as the Apostle Peter talks about how we're to live in this world, he gives us a negative exhortation in verse 11 and a positive exhortation in verse 12. In verse number 11, he tells us that we are not to give in to these worldly lusts which war against the soul. He says, abstain from them and turn away from them and fight against them. But then in verse number 12, he says, have your life or your conduct honest among the Gentiles, so that when they scrutinize, that's the idea, when they or though they see your good works, they might be able to glorify God in the day of visitation. You know what that passage is all about? You know that song we sometimes sing, A Beautiful Life? Each day I'll do a golden deed by helping those who are in need. My life on earth is but a span and so I'll do the best I can. That one, that's the idea of 1 Peter 2.12. Literally what Peter is saying is, Live a beautiful life. When he says, live your life honest among the Gentiles, he's using terminology that describes something that is beautiful or attractive. And so his point is that the way that we live out the principles of New Testament Christianity, that that's supposed to be a beautiful thing, so that those who are in the world around us, they might see it and they might be attracted to it. And when he talks about glorifying God on the day of visitation, he's letting us know that it's quite possible that it may be that there will be souls on the day of judgment who are able to glorify God in the sense of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the rest, enter into the rest that's been prepared for you. Because the first thing that happened was that they saw New Testament Christianity on display on a regular basis through the influence of someone in their circle. And then they said, Listen, you've got to tell me more, I wanna know. And then they're able to hear and obey. This passage that was read for us a moment ago, it's a seldom used passage. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 20 to 23, prophetically looking at the time of Christ and the influence that the gospel and Christ is going to have into the world, in the world. And in the context of that, Zechariah says, In those days, all of the nations are going to grab the sleeves or the shirt, the garment of a Jewish man, and say, Let us go with you because we've heard that God is with you. That's about influence. That's about seeing the impact and the effect of the Word of God in the lives of people and saying, we want to be like you and we want to experience the life that that you're experiencing. We want those blessings just like you have them. It's all about influence. influence. If we want to win souls through our influence, then the first thing that has to happen is we have to always be mindful of just how important it is to win souls. To remember the command of the Great Commission to follow the example of our Lord, to know that we're debtors and that we have a responsibility and understand that winning souls is not just about what we say, but it's also about what we do and how we live. We also need to have an idea about what's required, about what's required in order to use our influence to win souls. Think about these points. The first thing that's going to be required, obviously, is faithfulness. This builds right along with the passages we just looked at in First Peter 2, verse 12, and Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23, faithfulness. In other words, not hypocrisy. If you want to see a person turn away from the cause and the church of Christ, then just, just be hypocritical in front of them for just a few moments. Say one thing and do another and watch a person turn away because countless thousands if not millions have throughout the course of human history as they have heard Christians say this is what God says we have to do. But they've seen those same Christians do something completely and utterly opposite. Can you imagine going to a car dealership and trying to, uh, or listening rather to a uh, sales pitch from a salesman wanting you to buy their car and their product knowing that they actually refuse to drive their own product? Why would you buy something from a person who refuses to bank on the reliability of his own product? It doesn't make any sense. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 1 and following. Peter's talking to wives who are Christians who are married to men who are not And do you know what Peter talks about in those two passages? As he talks about how they might win their husbands to Christ, he says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they may, without a word, be won by the conduct of their wives while they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Notice the language is specific. He says, without a word. In other words, these husbands might be won to Christ, simply by noticing on a daily basis the faithfulness of their wife. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, Paul tells a young preacher, be an example of the believers in word and in conduct and in love and in faith and in purity. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, in verse number 16, he tells the same preacher, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine so that you may save yourself and those that hear you. Notice, not just pay attention to what you preach because that's the thing that's going to save people, but also pay attention to yourself. In other words, make sure you apply what you preach. Don't be a hypocrite. If we're going to win souls for Christ, the first thing that has to happen is that we're going to have to be faithful. We cannot be hypocritical. We cannot say one thing and then turn around and do another. We're either going to have to be all for Christ and all about living out the commands of New Testament Christianity, or we may as well just turn away from it. Jesus tells us in Revelation chapter 3 that one thing that makes him sick is a lukewarm congregation full of lukewarm people. Jesus told the church in Laodicea, you remember, you're lukewarm. I wish you were cold or hot. Pick one. Stop riding the fence. But because you're lukewarm, you make me sick. Hypocrisy is about being lukewarm. And we're not going to win any souls with influence by being a hypocrite. Second, we need to know what it is to be caring and to be compassionate There is this statement in Psalm uh, Psalm 142 and verse number 4 that ought to catch uh, uh, the attention of each and every one of us. The psalmist makes uh, this statement in Psalm 142 and verse number 4. He said, Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me, and no one cares for my soul. Can you imagine on the day of judgment, someone standing before the judgment bar of God and saying, listen, I lived my entire life and there was no one who actually cared for my soul, no one who showed any tenderness, no one who showed any concern, no one who showed any compassion whatsoever. What do we learn from the, uh, from the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 verse 34 and 35? There was a lawyer that came to Jesus seeking to justify himself and asked Jesus a question saying, who is my neighbor? And Jesus began to tell the parable of the good Samaritan. And in this parable, you remember, there's a Jewish man who's traveling and he's beaten and he's left for dead. And there's a priest and a Levite, the two who certainly should have known what the law required, who certainly should have exercised kindness and care and compassion and helped that man. But they turned away from him and then comes a Samaritan. The Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. They didn't want anything to do with one another. Complete and utter prejudice against the two or between the two. And yet Jesus says, it's the Samaritan who not only helps the man, but he goes the extra mile. He, puts him, uh, he bandages his wounds. He doctors him up. He puts him on his animal. He takes him to an inn. He pays the fare and tells the innkeeper, take care of him as much as is needed, and I'll come back and I'll pay what's, what's owed. He went the extra mile. Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think was neighbor? And he was forced to say, the one who showed mercy on him. What does that parable teach us? Among other things, it teaches us the importance of having care and concern and compassion for those who are lost. Regardless of Uh, who they may be or what circumstance their life may find them in or what color their skin might be or what language they might speak. It doesn't matter. Jesus says we have to have care for all people. Think about Esther, uh, Esther chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, where we find that when Esther is taken into the court of the king, that um, Mordecai uh, cares about her, and so he paces daily looking for answers about how she's doing. I wonder if we daily are thinking about our friends and our neighbors, those who we know are living in sin and struggling with sin, and we care about them so much that we're checking on them daily to see what needs they might have so that we can try to meet them. Matthew 9 verse 36 says about our Lord that he was moved with compassion because he looked upon the multitude and he saw that they were scattered abroad as sheep without a shepherd. We're going to have to be moved with the same kind of care and the same kind of compassion. If we don't care for those who are lost, if we don't care for the souls of men, then why would we ever seek to win them with our influence? We also need to be mindful of the importance of what we might call tactfulness. Or we might even use the word strategy. Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 6, the Bible talks about our speech and it says, let your speech be seasoned with salt so that you might know how to answer every man. And when it, or as it pertains to our interactions with those who we're seeking to win for Christ, of course we have to recognize that we have to be careful and think about our words. Think about what we say and how we say it and recognize that not everyone's in the same situation of life. 1 Peter 3 and verse number 15. The Bible says, Sanctify the Lord in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer of the hope that lies within you and notice the qualifier with meekness and with fear. Meekness is similar to humility. It's the idea of having power that's harnessed or under control. We think maybe about a vehicle and about the engine that's under the hood and how much power that engine may have. And the fact that when we sit behind the wheel and we put our hands on the wheel and our foot to the accelerator, we have all of the power of that automobile within our hands, within our grasp. We control it. That's what meekness is all about. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 and following, the Bible says that the servant of the Lord must not strive, must, but must be gentle, must be patient with all men, seeking to try and help them escape from the snare of the devil that the devil has them in. Jude 22 and 23 says that some you save uh, with, with care and some you save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Over and over and over again, the Bible tells us that when it pertains to soul winning, it's not about being stubborn and taking a my way or the highway sort of approach and then scowling and uh, going off in a huff whenever someone doesn't see it the way that we do. But rather it's about being mindful and careful and prayerful and tactful, careful about what we say and strategic and, well, simply being patient. Then there's prayerfulness. Romans 10 and verse number 1 Paul said, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. How often do you pray for the lost? And then there's conviction, Matthew 17 and verse number 20. Similar to being faithful and not not hypocritical, if we're going to try and influence souls for good that they might come to Christ, don't you suppose it would be a good thing that we're convicted first? about the necessity and about the truth of the things that we're trying to convince people to believe and to practice in their lives as well? Absolutely. Winning souls with our influence is something that's possible for every person, but we're going to have to be mindful of how important it is to do it, and we're going to have to be mindful of what is required, faithfulness and care and tactfulness and prayer and conviction. If those things are present in our lives, we'll be able to do it. Tonight we're going to pick up here and we're going to talk about two more things. We're going to talk about this from a negative standpoint, some things that can harm us from using our influence, things that will keep us from using our influence to win souls for Christ. And then at the conclusion of our study, we'll look at some individuals in scripture who use their influence, some for evil and some for good. But now we're going to offer the Lord's invitation and maybe this morning there's someone here who has a need to respond, to become a child of God, to become a Christian. We'd love to help you in that way. Maybe this morning there's someone here who is a Christian and as you think about your own influence and the way you've been living your life, it's readily apparent to you that you've not been using your influence to the best of your ability to impact souls around you for good. Then we urge you to make that change. Repent and make your life right with the Lord and if we can help you to do that, And come forward and let your need be known while we stand and sing together.